Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Never Stay Dead. I am Damien, and I am joined by my handsome friend, Matt. Oh. <laughs> but, um, so how have you been doing, Matt? I am okay. Okay. It is COVID. We're all trapped in whatever little lives we've got. Um, but we're reading a, a big, expansive book today called, or we have read and we're going to discuss, The New Frontier um, by Darwin Cook, written and illustrated by Darwin Cook, with uh, color by Dave Stewart, uh, a favorite colorist of many people. And um, what else is there to say? It was, it was originally printed in single issues in 2004, and then I think in 2005 it made it into a... Uh, some paperback trades or something. I think that's where I originally read it. And then it's been in a bunch of hardcover iterations. I'm looking at the absolute edition here. And Matt may have read it in a hardcover deluxe version. I did. Thank you for sending that my way. That made it. <laughs> yes, I, I had both. <laughs> and I wasn't happy with the deluxe version. It wasn't deluxe enough. Oh had bad binding so i i don't feel like i've given you that great of a gift i it's fine by me a little bit of the gutter loss just doesn't bother me as much and of course it is completely available on the dc universe app which i also have up on the screen here for the people watching in video i picked it because i remembered it as one of the most brilliant superhero comics i'd read in ages when i read mm -hmm. it back in 2005 and I think I overrated it a bit back then. Uh, it's kind of at the moment being considered a bit of a classic. Like my edition is the 15th anniversary edition. And wow. like I said, there's been various hardcover versions. So uh, Matt, you weren't sure if you'd read it or just seen the movie previously? Yeah, I definitely hadn't read it. I had seen the animated adaptation before and I watched that again as we were preparing for this. And it's funny because I definitely remember it being heralded as, you know, one of the greats. And there, there's a lot in this book to like. There's a lot of just like comic craftsmanship. There's a lot of thoughts and ideas. There's a lot of interesting take on DC lore. There's a lot of good stuff in this book. And I kind of want to preface what I'm saying because I'm going to be fairly critical of a number of parts of this book. And I think that's in large part due to the fact that I'm reading this in 2020. If, you know, I had read this in 2004, I think it would have read differently. I'm also thinking I'd be reading it as a high schooler, which might be part of it. I think reading <laughs> it uh, post-college might be part of the criticism. Because this book opens itself up to some higher-minded criticism that I think it fails at in certain points. And right. we'll get there. But I but, first read this in my 40s, <laughs> so yeah. I don't have that excuse. Um, and I'm not, I'm not putting, I'm not saying it's a bad book. I'm just saying it's not the great book that I somehow had pictured it as in my I, head after reading it. You know, years later, I just looked back on it. I, I just want to say, like, overall, I think this is a worthy read. I totally think it's worth checking out. You can't deny that there's a lot of greatness here, but falls short. It falls short with some of the messages and themes and even artistry. So 
good, not great. It's a complicated read. It's an interesting one. I'm glad we're doing it, but it's never going to be my favorite or anything. I have a, this is very much a mixed bag for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I felt it was a mixed bag in terms of its success in just storytelling techniques and, and the like. Yes. Let me just really quickly kind of spoil the whole book uh, for oh, those. Good luck. <laughs> I'm, always, I'm always trying to uh, recap books quickly. But I would say this book is supposed to take place between the end of the Golden Age period of superheroes mm-hmm. when comic books book superheroes were really popular and then they kind of went away and there was just war and romance and horror comics and it it's sort of like giving a quote real world in the dc world reason for that happening which was that which kind of resembles watchmen that superheroes were made illegal mm-hmm. and so for a long time they were in the shadows or not or inactive completely and um and then it gives a series of events which somehow tie into like the space program and all of the Kennedy idealism that brings back the superheroes up to, into in an adventure that leads up to their the first issue or the first it was an issue of showcase that featured uh, the Justice Society of or the Justice League of America the first Justice League of America comic it's literally supposed to lead up to that right. It's like a tapestry, which makes it really hard to summarize, a tapestry of different characters and different events in that intervening period, starting with Dinosaur Island and moving through um, John Jones, the Martian manhunter arriving on Earth and his life on Earth before he decides to become a superhero and the adventures of Hal Jordan before he becomes a Green Lantern when he's this odd pacifist air force air force pilot and sort of failed test pilot who gets a job with a secret project at ferris airlines those are just a few we, we get snatches of batman and wonder woman and superman wonder woman and superman in a sense have become like um dr manhattan in in watchmen where they're the one one legal the two legal superheroes who are sent out on missions for the U.S. government. Um, and some of them turn out to be questionable, especially to Wonder Woman. And we get little flashes of a black hero who's trying to fight back against the KKK. That's a pretty hard one to chew on in this book. And then eventually we build up to the Martian Manhunter's origin, so to speak, and Hal Jordan Green Lantern's origin. Um the house Wonder Woman and Superman kind of change their attitudes or their approach to things and how Batman and Robin get back involved. And who else am I, who am I missing in that mix of that tapestry? Uh, Did you, the only one I'm not sure you mentioned was the flash. Uh, Yes. There's a bit of the flash. They don't actually go into his origin. He's kind of there and then decides to retire and then comes back. There's a little bit on his origin, I guess. I mean, it's not so much his origin, but his presence as a hero that wasn't as right. established coming up is more the... We'll get there. We also, I mean, we have the uh, the Losers, <laughs> which yep. were a war, um, war comics group, a more obscure one. 
We also have the Suicide Squad, which were also a war comics kind of group before the superhero Suicide Squad. And we have the Challengers of the Unknown. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that, we'll, we'll backtrack for in a minute, <laughs> back to issue one. But I will, I'll just say, and maybe you can give your opinion too, a lot of that is not terribly deeply explained. So if you don't already know who all these characters are, it can be pretty tricky. I did not know who that flag guy is, Colonel Flag, um, but he plays a major role. And another guy, guy uh, King Faraday. So I don't know where those characters come from, um, but I assume they're part of deep DC lore. I remember Colonel Flag from like the Timmyverse cartoons, but what he was in relation to these comics that they're based on, I, I don't know. And for those who aren't familiar with Darwin Cook, he has this style that's kind of, I don't know, a cross between those Bruce Timm kind of cartoons and Jack Kirby and Alex Toth and a lot of other sort of classic, very deceptively simple looking art styles. And and everything in the comic is done, or 90% of the comic is done in these widescreen panels, three wide panels per page. Right. And as much as I can enjoy that deceptively simple art style when it comes to superheroes, when we're between all those military groups we mentioned, and it's a lot of stern, you know, square jawed men, right? Telling them apart was one of the big failings for me because I'm already struggling to keep these people, you know, juggled in my mind, and they all look identical. I think that is the book's big visual flaw. It has many, many visual delights, but it is, and it and it hurts the storytelling that it is often hard to picture. It's hard to even know which one's Hal Jordan and which one is Flag or, you know, whatever. It, it can become very difficult. And, um, you know, one of the characters in the begin in the first section is a um, American Indian, but he looks identical to everybody else. So for what sometimes I was unsure which character like there was a narration over and it took me a long time to realize that narrator in the first section of the book was Lieutenant Cloud or whatever his name was the Indian member of the losers. That's fair. And at first I thought cuz I'd forgotten the plot to this such as it is. So now I'm we're looking at the the first issue and it takes place on Dinosaur Island, or that's what I call it. I'm not Island of the Lost or something. There was a whole series in one in Weird War magazines where soldiers would get um, shipwrecked on this island with dinosaurs and have to fight them. And so the losers, who are a different war series, end up on the Dinosaur Island having their final adventure. And right. uh, I thought this is just a random story. <laughs> And so it goes, big spoiler, this island is part of a giant monster that eventually wants to wipe humanity off the earth and has been keeping life alive, kept a life alive on earth during uh, the, the, the sort of pseudo-nuclear winter that was created by an asteroid that killed off the dinosaurs. Besides the threat, the, the bigger thing is the losers are out there to save Flag, so... Um, that's kind of our connection when it 
comes around to the end because flag p- plays a major part in kind of essentially coming back here and dealing with that's true that's sort of like our introduction to flag sort of yeah it just doesn't it's weird well it's it's super weird because this is almost prologue and yes. not just prologue it's a very long prologue right maybe 40 pages right but in that um we're kind of dealing with the only in world war ii moment of the book and everything about this is being post world war ii in this kind of cold war vietnam mm-hmm. era before we come to the new front two, the new era the kennedy era so that makes it being prologue even weirder with flag because that means flag is old yes but he's not depicted like that well, that's true, but say he was 25 in 1945 by 1962, you know, that's um <laughs> that's 17 years later. He's not too old, but he doesn't seem to age, certainly. No one no one looks their age or ages in this comic. I'm not saying he should be a geriatric. I'm just saying he should be old enough to be distinguished from all the other true, true. characters. I I agree. I agree. But you know, maybe one could argue that Darwin Cook is playing with comic book history and these characters never age. So he's not aging them. You could, but I feel like he's represented as a bygone era in comparison to Hal Jordan later in the book. And so by making him older, that actually furthers the story through visual storytelling. Yeah. So. Yes, it would have helped the storytelling. And also just being able to tell these people apart. <laughs> but yeah. Yes. yes, it would have helped that, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess when you look at this whole thing, he's not dealing fairly with the whole concept of age because Batman was around during the wartime era, apparently. Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman, yeah, in the Depression come up and continue. Yeah, And he's still active by 1962, and unlike Superman and Wonder Woman, where you could kind of imagine they don't age at the rate the rest of us do, Batman would then already be, you know, 50 or something or late 40s. <laughs> it would be pretty hard to do what he does by that time. But he is Batman. Also, he's the only one operating like Rorschach did in Watchmen, I guess. Right. You know, kind he's of, kind of the Rorschach character. yeah. Which doesn't, that's a terrible comparison. It's just that there's a law in outlawing superheroes and batman is operating i don't think there's a comparison beyond that right well so i both appreciated and was deeply frustrated with cook's approach by by kind of doing i mean it's maybe linear through time but kind of a non-linear story that just jumps around without explaining why we're looking at these different bits and pieces Mm-hmm. And then all those bits and pieces come together sort of by the end to explain how we led up to this kind of new age of superheroes that was more optimistic than in things had been for a while. Mm-hmm. So he kind of, and, and it's kind of a clever taking comic book history where comics were kind of a bright, uh, had a bright, fun future during the, the golden age of comics up through um the wartime and then shortly after the wartime they they became grim and dark for the most part and then they went through their own economic collapse and dark times 
before kind of coming back with the with the silver age the optimistic silver age of comics mm-hmm. and interestingly in our current sort of debates about the right way to view the world the silver age was a more scientific science fictional age of comics right i don't know if darwin cook was thinking about that but i mean it's not really in this book but this yeah. book is much more politically focused and like to the times focused i guess so you know I, that's not where this book goes i mean i think he wants to link it link this new optimism to uh to civil rights and to the opening up of society he doesn't you know go into things that were happening with women or sexuality during that period either but but i no. think he's kind of thinking of all those things and wanting to just slightly link them to to the world of superheroes right but i mean he doesn't bring that up partially because there weren't any superheroes to represent that or any dc characters to represent that uh which yeah right he makes up this john henry character yeah i so john henry was something that bugged me because really his only inclusion in the book is Actually, when Marsha Manhunter is disguised as a detective and looking into cases in the area involving these kinds of people. And so John Hare Henry looks very much like Hangman in The Watchmen, a black guy, noose around oh, his right. neck, kind of carrying a hammer, though. And he gets into this scuffle with some white supremacists that did him and his family wrong. They burned his family alive. And, uh, in there this entire time with he's only in it for like i want to say five pages um it's being narrated well his story reappears every here and there throughout the tapestry i, I think. think it's mentioned but there's only really one big section that with him to my recollection you'll have to understand as we flip through this this book this story is 400 plus pages long so it's very hard to find the little bits that we're talking about well there's technically chapters but eh. Um, and on page 182 is kind of the part of the, you're right. It is broken up. Sorry. I'm taking, but it was three pages and there's like three pages later. Okay. Six pages. Um, but so it's narrated. John Henry doesn't get to talk. We don't ever get to see him right. in relation to the other her- characters. He is just an element in here. He's representing two things. A, he's representing african-americans because he's the only one right and he's also representing that this is happening elsewhere in america because really dc despite not being marvel and having (laughs) made up places are all coastal and so if you look at the dc map they're all east coast in these very populated areas which you could make you know your assumptions of what those cities are probably like but they're predominantly white and um it bothers right it's like he threw in this social issue without mm. really knowing how to really connect it to all these white superheroes right <laughs> and he wanted um, there to be some kind of well yeah and you, you and so in preparing for us talking about this, I also watched some videos. One of the videos was made by a very prominent uh, comic skater talking about how this showed the grim, gritty side of 
you know, the era that we're talking about and how Darwin Cook wasn't shying away from anything and not brushing over anything, quote unquote, the way SJWs do, of course. (laughs) But uh, what really bothered me is that this is so much their way to tackle racism in comics is you pay it lip service and then you go away from it. Because the Uh problem of the way that John Henry's included here is that he never meets any of the white characters. He never gets to step into the new frontier. Black heroes are not accepted into the glorious new future. They were never even really a part of the story to begin with. They were an element happening elsewhere that's for other people to worry about. And these scenes include the most vulgar and gut-wrenching stuff in the comic. It's the most brutal and grim, including a, a... a rejection of innocence from a little girl who right. uh, utters the word that the you N shouldn't word. say. <laughs> yeah, to call him out right. to the people trying to kill him. And it's... Right, he dies because of the innocent little girl calling over the Ku Klux Klan to kill him. Yeah, and it's it's clumsy. It's clumsy. I, I don't see how <laughs> Comicsgate type people could claim him. He was trying his best... To somehow link some movement towards social justice to the early Justice League, which had no black members, of course, and never dealt with those issues. Those issues only were dealt with in D.C., you know, about 10 years after the reforming of the Justice League of America by, but not by the Justice League of America, by the Green Lantern in those Denny O'Neill Green Lantern issues around 1970. Right. Well, the the reason why D.C. dealt with that kind of stuff. Yeah, this is exactly how they want this sort of situation talked about, which I think speaks to how clumsily it was handled. Well, yeah, and I know his wife refuted them and said Darwin Cook was not one of them and would be disgusted by them. Right. But I, you know, in terms of not shying away from the grim and grittiness, he doesn't shy away from the fact that a lot of these people are probably pretty awful, especially Flag and... Some of the people in uh, running the challengers and and all of that kind of stuff. It's a it, it's a weird juxtaposition of this cartoony, simple, pure kind of art with kind of a world that is not that functional and and fairly unjust. Well, and it's kind of take, take creating that world and trying to then at the end wedge it into the innocent world of. 1962 Silver Age, or wherever, whenever that showcase first came out, is is a push. It doesn't really um, match. Well, to counter that that you're saying, though, I think the sections with Wonder Woman, in particular Wonder Woman and Superman, kind of counter that and actually handle it pretty deftly. Because Wonder Woman calls it out on the face and says, like, you know, what we're doing, what we're doing with the American government is wrong. And we're introduced to Wonder Woman when she had a bunch of female soldiers in, I believe it's Vietnam. Yeah, I think it's Vietnam. Uh, Yeah. um, Rise up and essentially slaughter the men that were abusing them. Right. And and Superman takes issue with this because she's basically called in and had a bunch of women murder a bunch of men for something that wasn't sanctioned. Right, he only wants to do things sanctioned by the U.S. government. But that doesn't not include not killing, which is kind of un-Superman to begin with, which is interesting, but you're, we're kind of skating around the fact that they helped 
the war effort in World War II, so they probably did, right? Right. Although the traditional view of the Golden Age is that they couldn't really send Superman or Wonder Woman off to fight the Nazis, so they were the two heroes who didn't fight the Nazis. They sent right. off heroes. <coughs> Real heroes, Marvel heroes, right? Like well, Captain America, Marvel, yeah. ones that weren't super overpowered, so you would not wonder why the Nazis weren't defeated tomorrow. <laughs> but overall, you know, Wonder Woman... So yeah, Wonder Woman's another one along with that John Henry type story that has a conscience and is talking about a better world, but it doesn't really line up with our end point. <laughs> well, where with Wonder Woman as the token woman in the Justice League of America, um, you know, so that the problem is he's trying to put all this stuff in that he then can't do anything with because his end point doesn't allow for it. Well, so I, I feel like this book is to try to talk about a transition between two periods. You have the, you know, the Great War. Sorry, I, I'm forgetting World War Two. The Great War is technically World War One, but at this point, wouldn't they just be considered one war? Um, <laughs> not quite. Yeah, not quite. Um, and then we're in this weird moral gray period. But the idea is by the end of this book, we're moving into this new better age because we're all going to push for that better tomorrow and not idly sit by against the you know the problems of the recent past but in that you're right the where wonder woman ends up fights that but i also wouldn't believe that the wonder woman of this book would become a secretary you know right i it's a bit revisionist but it's also avoiding that fact Right. I mean, we've got some characters who are seeing that the world's a dark place and they want they want to they come together at the end and they're going to make, try to make a better world. But really what they're going to do is fight giant aliens. So it, it just kind of undermines itself because they do they fight a giant, well, a monster from Earth that's like a giant alien. And that monster was super cool. And was very, I thought it was like a Jack Kirby times a thousand in its imaginative, grotesque, disturbing monsterness. And then in the first issue of, of the Justice League, they fight Starro, who's kind of a bizarre outer space giant monster. So it's, I don't know. There's some symmetry. It's not always perfect, but... yeah. I think it's it's elevating the the high points and ignoring the low points as an excuse for Darwin Cook to draw some amazing scenes. And as you say, he's best when he's drawing superheroes, uh, maybe because you can keep them all apart by their outfits. I mean, it, it there's just some stunning stuff in that bat. I don't I forget what they call the monster itself, like the center. That was not a great name for a monster. Yeah, but but that battle scene against the monster was just super cool, and the envisioning of of what the monster uh, looked like on the inside and its skin that was covered with thousands of other monsters, you know, it was super impressive to me. Oh, well, I mean, and it's I'd argue Cthulhu esque. Yes, it is. It's kind of Cthulhu meets Jack Kirby. Is how I sort of experienced okay. it. You know, like his uh, his uh, apocalypse kind of scenes and stuff. But yeah, it just, it was a strange journey. 
through bits and pieces that um, Darwin Cook wanted to put together, but perhaps didn't quite fully succeed in putting together. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, this is definitely a tapestry book that you're meant to take your time with and kind of piece everything together because there's a lot of clues throughout this book, but it's not even strictly a mystery. You know, there's right. there's a lot of thoughts and ideas. There's a lot of reference and it's interesting, but it's pulling from a lot of different areas all at once. And it's interesting. It's compelling, but it's fragmented. Yeah. Yeah. And along with the fragmentation, I think the other thing that bothered me most was it kind of it kind of for the most part utilized a kind of decompressed style you know with a lot of panels with a little bit of words and then every once in a while a total info dump where there's so many words to read on the page and it was like this huge shot and and the words weren't really you know deeply integrated with the pictures i'm trying to do you know what i mean there were every once in yeah. a while so it was suddenly like, okay, now you need to download all this text um, after getting used to this kind of leisurely, not too heavily worded rhythm. It's funny. I think it's... And those really bothered me more than they should have, I think. But um, it was like, oh, God. I, I, I hit points where I thought, I don't like reading this book. I'm just kind of bored and struggling. It's a curse with comic artists when they take up writing. They get to these parts where they just want to do info dumps and like just write so much on the page, but past what's good writing. Yeah. And it seems to happen with every major artist doing their own writing. And this book didn't escape it. True. Although um, I'm trying to think if that's every artist doing their own. There are some exceptions. Did I, I mean like did Frank Miller ever do that or um, I thought he did in some of his earlier like Daredevil stuff like there's some clunky passages where he info dumps but he it's more to his benefit though because he gets some bil- brilliant Frank Miller like uh, splash pages in uh-huh. return for it and also doesn't feel as bad because they're very issue based early on so there's like a page that there's a lot of text on but it doesn't pop out as bad but like. Jim Lee, when he does Wildcats on his own for the first time, like these walls of text for no gosh for dang reason. You think working <laughs> under Claremont, he would have picked up a thing or two. Um, I wonder, you know, there may be an extent to they aren't as experienced as storytellers. And so they haven't figured out how to weave all the information into the story. So they just get to a point where, okay, I've just got to tell the audience all these ideas I have that will explain things in the background yeah good guess (laughs) so so yeah i i found it you know that's part of what i didn't remember what an uneven read it was and i have a feeling back in 2005 i was i was reading it for the art and and i've maybe changed as a reader where i expect more from from writers than i from the writing of comics than i used to well it could be that. I also find um, often when I go back and read something, if I was reading in like issues, which I don't know if you were or not. When? In 2005, I was reading more trades. But... Well, no, I meant did you read this in issues initially? No, I, I think I read it in the two paperback volumes, which I probably got okay. out of the library. Yeah, I, it's sometimes the first time you read, you glance over a lot and you're just kind of trying to take in the basic plot. And if you read it again, you dig a little deeper and yeah find it different and it's in a book like this um i think it's going to take more than one read to really soak it all in because there's a lot here 
And it has a, there's a fun aspect of, ooh, look how he's connecting all these different little pathways of the DC universe. And he's kind of connecting them together. And he's giving, uh, you know, especially with like the Martian Manhunter and um, Hal Jordan, he's giving a, a deep sort of prehistory of these characters. Mm-hmm. And and he's evoking a ideal, an art, art visual ideal of an older age of comics that is perhaps better than the original that the ideal was based on in terms of the visuals. So it's like a a hyper nostalgic experience, like an artificial nostalgic experience in a way. Right. But I think that's, I think part of the reason that this is so seminal is because of that, right? Like this is kind of their counter to Watchmen with all their ready-made characters for you to enjoy, but it, it ends on the bright, shiny future right. pushing things forward. And it isn't, you know, essentially a a kickdown of everything dc represents but lifting it up and finding the fun in it and i wonder i mean i haven't i should have i guess looked but i didn't look to see if there's interviews with darwin cook about his intentions but i wonder if he did think of it as kind of taking the challenge of watchmen and trying to play it into a a more optimistic spin yeah because the time frame makes sense to me because like 2004 four-ish 2005-ish in the the area this is about the time when comics were going through some sort of age shift right like ultimate comics had come out the code was being dropped wholesale you know um coloring and publishing was changing and just kind of like there's a lot of movements and new ideas happening and some new creative really coming it was is a different it was more subtle but i think it was a changing moment for comics and this being a good look back and kind of summary to press forward yeah i kind of think of that period um as being when superhero comics started embracing more the writer-centric vertigo approach to things to a degree i mean i know you can't really compare uh the marvel's ultimate comics to vertigo but there was to me a feeling of that of that approach more than the older kind of Stan Lee or, you know, or then the, the nineties image guys kind of approach to superheroes that suddenly there was a more, a desire for more layers and textures. And even though that had been done in Watchmen and, and in some of the other comics sort of on the edges of, of comic books uh, of superhero comics, like the authority and stuff, it was becoming more and more a mainstream thing to do. Well, and comics were starting to be thought of differently, especially superheroes, because you're getting the initial bursts of the movies and stuff coming through. And you had the people brought up on the 90s cartoons that were hugely successful, um, either continuing or dropping with comics. And so trying to maintain that, which would be about their core audience at the time, um, led to some moments. But that was more Marvel. I can't, I'm trying to remember. So around this time you had like what hush and, uh, Oh, it's that Superman one forever tomorrow. Oh, that was, wasn't that kind of a failure? Jim for tomorrow. Superman for tomorrow. I think critically in, in our minds, it's something of a failure, but I remember it being a big, the big, like 
Superman story of the time because they pushed it so, so hard. And I would think you at that time, you also were beginning to have the rise of writing for the trade, of writing for a much longer story uh, because you were now pretty sure that most of the individual issues were going to end up collected yeah trades were definitely like the driver of the industry at this point and so darwin cook's definitely you know thinking in terms of this big tapestry and not worrying about if an individual issue doesn't fully you know tell a story in a way it seems like he lost control of it a bit and he wasn't able to bring all his parts together into a he had a a beginning point and an end point and then a lot of pieces in the middle some of which hmm. um pointed to his end point and some didn't really right yeah and maybe it didn't matter because he was doing peak darwin, darwin cook art with peak dave stewart colors <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if i've seen the individual issues that because they're 64 pages long they must have been like mini graphic novels themselves yeah i think they're like prestige kind of like a dark knight returns kind of vibe there but yeah i mean there's just so much that happens and it's funny because like it's talked about but i don't think green lantern's even really the main character here but we don't even see ab and sir like the green lantern stuff really till we're most of the way through the book it feels like feels like maybe we had 50 or 60 pages of hal jordan before we got to ab and sir it feels like the two the two biggest stories were Martian Manhunter and Hal Jordan. Right. And I think Flash is pretty... I feel like Flash is a bigger component, even though he may not have as many pages. I feel like he represents and does a lot by being there. He also has most of the best scenes in this yes, book. A superhero type of scenes, yeah. But he's not... His his back, his his life, his who he is as a person is only you know explored for a page or two versus right the many many pages on those other guys and then and then the other really long sequence is that first sequence on dinosaur island but the only like fun of the age superhero scene we actually really have i think that isn't really connected to the overall plot is the flash one where he's fighting uh mr freeze you're right right like the scenes between uh diana wonder woman and superman are more them talking they're the aftermath of things or a scene of them with eisenhower being given a medal right and i mean there is a scene with batman and martian manhunter um where they're saving a child from the cult that is possessed by the big bad right that's true and that was a cool scene too it is but it's so unlike the comics of the time well true but there was no martian manhunter at that time this is the hidden secret history of martian manhunter i don't think i don't think he had appeared so this is like a story that you know the secret history of the dc universe when did he when was he introduced i don't know the history of martian manhunter i have to say i'd have to google that right now (sighs) fake geek grandpa come on i'm i'm failing as a geek grandpa i don't know much about martian manhunter at all not sure there's a ton to know is there but you know this that strikes me that um he was created in 1955, so, huh, I'm wrong. In Detective Comics. He was in the Silver Age, then he's in the Bronze Age. Right, so he was created right at the beginning of the Silver Age. Okay. You know, Alex Ross drew him, so you knew he had to be from this period, because <laughs> he wouldn't touch a character that wasn't. 
In a way, large portions of this book are extremely sophisticated fan service. It's like, ooh, beautiful scene with the flash, cool background on John Jones and how he slowly integrated himself into Earth society, little extra scenes about the challengers of the unknown that you never saw before and that kind of stuff and the secrets of dinosaur island mm -hmm. so and and on that level i think i probably responded to it um back in 2005 probably as i was because if that's the same time as the ultimate marvels that's around the time that i was take i was dipping back into the world of superheroes uh, i i discovered planetary around 2000 2001 and then I went into the comic stores and I was looking for more Warren Ellis and I found uh, the ult the Ultimates and um, the Ultimate Fantastic Four because Warren Ellis was reading it and other bits and pieces and then stumbled across this after a while. Oh, so this was part of your road back into the kind of addiction. I didn't. So I, I dipped back in and I became back into superheroes and I started going to comic book stores a little more. But I still mostly was drawing on books I could find at the library. And I was in the middle of big career changes and stuff. So I, I was not um, I was not heavily spending my time on comics. It was just sort of a dipping in and out kind of thing at that okay. particular time. Which is probably healthier than anything I'm doing anyways. Well, and then but I yeah. become, became unhealthy around 2010. And 2010 till now has been sort of nonstop over, overkill on comics. Yeah. As can be witnessed on my YouTube channel where I have over 700 videos. Yeah, I think I'm almost done with my year of pain with comics. I think I have one more run I have to buy. Your um, year of pain? Yeah. <laughs> I, you I've mean been, painful spending? Yeah, I've, I've bought pretty much every Spider-Man, X-Men, and Green Lantern book uh -huh. after a point. And the X keeps growing. I, I chalk that up to COVID, COVID therapy. Yeah. If it didn't start last November, uh, that would be completely. Well, that was a lot, part a lot of it though. Yeah, I have. I mean, I've I've always been buying. I've been building up and building up in terms of buying these expensive hardbacks like this Absolute Edition. But since COVID hit, I've been ordering more and more of them online. It's just like this. You need some kind of release valve because you feel like there's so much you can't do. Right. Yeah. I hear you. So anyway, it's funny because it's such a big, complex book. It's almost like there's less to say about it because there's no through line that we can really follow. Yeah, I'm trying to think if there's other parts I want to dig on. I mean, one thing to note is like the animation is much more focused on Carol and Hal and building that relationship and what that means. But The, the animated movie, which I haven't seen. Yeah. Is that what you mean by the animation? Yeah. Okay. I thought for a second you meant the art. and then No, no, no. Does the anima animation capture the feel of this art and colors? I mean, more or less. I mean, uh, Darren Cook and Bruce Tibb worked together before, and so it leans more Bruce Tibb, understandably, but I, I feel like this feels and looks different. But it's an interesting adaptation because it, it's mostly pure. It's like they take the parts of the book they want. They alter something slightly, mostly because they're removing parts. So they have to kind of gel Make up for the parts they move. Yeah. But by and large, it's pretty, it's a pretty straight, faithful adaptation. I'm sure if you really dug through, you'd find some more changes, but yeah, it's, it's not great. I, I the book's stronger 
Yeah. <laughs> it feels like the book, as I'm flipping through it as you're talking, is a great book for dipping into. You dip in, read the scene with the Flash versus Mr. Cold or Captain Cold, whatever he's called, um, mm-hmm. in this uh, fancy uh, casino. And then you, you know, dip into a scene of Superman and Wonder Woman having a chat on Paradise Island. Or in the skies above Paradise Island because he's not allowed to go there. And so it, it, I think I will return to this book, but probably I don't know when I will reread the whole story again. That's fair. So it is for me kind of fan service. It's like, ooh, you know, real, here's a really ultimate cool scene for this character or that character. Yeah, there's a lot of fun like pages and stuff and it, it's interesting. But yeah, I think you're right. Dipping is almost more fun and... I know, I've heard this described since it does focus more on Hal Jordan as kind of a different take on the Green Lantern origin, which if you were reading it for that, it would suck. I would say definitely Emerald Dawn is a million times stronger. Uh. Yeah, I, I guess if you're interested in Darwin's take of what kind of person the Green Lantern is. I mean, also as a veneer over all of this is Darwin's Cook's love for that this era which perhaps he feels guilty about and why he's stuck in the parts about the Ku Klux Klan is because it was a, a great era for some white men. <laughs> but he loves it. You know, he loves that Frank Sinatra brat pack, rat pack, I mean, uh, kind of stuff. And so well, Hal Jordan is one of those kind of post-war brat, uh, rat pack kind of dudes with his, ex- relate, yeah. his smooth relationship with uh carol ferris and all that stuff well and i mean you have to remember well it's it's fun and it's the part that was presented right like if you're a kid reading the comics and the stories you remember and you have emotional attachment to that's the part people talked about that that's where it was they they didn't show the horrible dirty side of things right and i mean as we learn more and more now that's just what it was people weren't talking about the stuff happening but at the same time like i if you're talking superheroes and having fun with it yeah you know like that wasn't part of it and so when it comes to representation talking about historical times i think you're right like i think he's kind of making a concession for the truth of the times but at the same time i i almost never say this um I, the book would probably be stronger without it because it's handled so clumsily. And I almost never think that like 2004 just isn't that long ago to yeah. uh, for the way that this was handled. And I'm the sort of person who, if you're looking at like feminist theory through the times, I'm going to look at a story like Landfall, which if you don't know really quick is just like part of the Arthur King Arthur canon where a woman who's a queen of another court is able to save her people by undressing in front of King Arthur and the queen kind of at first she didn't want to, and then she gives in to do to it to save her people because it's what's in her power to do it to impress the court there and in doing so saves the lives of her people. That was female empowerment because she was able to a be a major character and to make a choice to be the hero if you read it now mm, (laughs) wouldn't quite fly that way but at the time it was a huge step of progression i recognize that and i understand that but 2004 is way too late to be like 
well, there was a black guy somewhere and he was a hero, but it was rough. You know, like, no, it doesn't. And in 2004, I think, I mean, I don't know what Darwin Cook was thinking, but I think that a lot of uh, liberal white people in 2004 could think, hey, things are mostly better and we're headed in the right right direction. I mean, uh, we weren't at Barack Obama yet, but there might have been a, a sense of, yes, we've gotten past the worst of these times. And now for the public who's now people like me who've seen more of what was hidden um, thanks to social media and Black Lives Matter, we don't feel such an optimism that everything is necessarily going in the right way. I mean, I guess, but I'm also like, this guy could have walked down the hall and talked to Dwayne McDuffie to make sure he was doing this sort of thing right and didn't, you know, and or a number of other like milestone creators. Uh, just like he had access to do better and he didn't hear. I think what he did do well is give you a very strong sense that all these people in this sort of Frank Sinatra world are actually damaged goods. <laughs> they're all wrecks from World War II. They're, yeah. they're all, or, or the Korean War in the case of Hal Jordan. So they're all, their slick go get em gung ho-ness is a cover for, for the wrecks that they become because of uh, wartime experiences. Which is funny, and again, why I think The Flash is such a kind of important character in this book, because I, I think that veneer and all that that you're talking about, I believe, but I don't believe The Flash is any of that. He looks like a loaf on the couch till he gets up to run and like save the day, but he's also kind of like a puppy dog to his girlfriend. Like His personality is so offset from everyone in the book. He feels like a different kind of man almost and so well and they don't do that did he go to war i don't know if he did no no he's only ever really been a superhero but he's also a superhero against the law in that case because he knows it's the right thing to do so again yeah i i feel like that's why as we're going through this like the the flash's presence is felt in this book even when he isn't there necessarily Mm -hmm. because he's like this odd counterweight to so much of what you're talking about in a good way for both ends. Um, It's a character that really uplifts the book, even though he's not in really that much of it. And I'm looking at the ending here. Green arrow shows up. Right. Cool. Right. I mean, there, there, I think that takes us back to the fan service. We just see so many characters and only a few of them are really explored. But we get a cool scene here and there. You know, Green Arrow does a little bit of cool archery work. and um... <clears throat> Well, and I almost appreciate that more, right? Like, he didn't really have anything mm-hmm. for Green Arrow to do. So he threw him at, at the end for the big to-do because I think he's mentioned slightly beforehand. And then, you know, he's summoned to fight the big bad. And he's needed because he's part of the JLA that we're building to. But... There you go. Another thing, when I think of myself as a reader between then and now, going in deep, really maybe for my third or fourth time on superheroes, I've become more and more against big events and gatherings of large heroes. I prefer, you know, like my favorite comic recently at DC was Hawkman when it just was exploring Hawkman and not 
when it was hooking him, connecting him up with the Justice League or big events mm-hmm. in the DC universe. And so I personally, as a reader, have moved away from this whole idea of big universal events. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's maybe a common thing for us older readers. I, I see people come back to comics all the time. They dive into some events and then they start complaining about them and then they start looking for the the smaller books to read, I think. It's funny because I just dived into an event uh-huh. from 1989, I want to say, um, Inferno. An event and, I know nothing about. <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't really either. And it was handled shockingly differently. There, There's kind of three tracks going on that all loosely tie together. But it's more an event in that there's kind of this period of time where all this stuff is happening and a lot of characters are loosely affected. And then there's kind of the main books dealing with it. But like, it's an X-Men event. But there's more Spider-Man books than there are New Mutants books that are that's like one of the main tracks and all that. It's this whole crazy thing, but it was handled very differently. And a big part of that is how the creative through line happened at Marvel in those days versus the more corporate offices now or how it was ever handled at DC. It's interesting how if I was reading any one of those books, just getting the Inferno books through whatever books I was reading if you were doing it that way, would be perfectly fine. So they structured it loose enough so that the individual writers could just tackle it in a way that worked best for them and not let it derail their stories? Is that what you mean? Well, uh, yeah. So like Marvel is effectively in New York. And so this thing is happening in New York and the characters are going through what they're going through. But also this thing is happening that may or may not have a major part of the issues that actually tie in, which is compelling and worked. And like in the power pack, it's a big deal. In the Fantastic Four, it's barely mentioned. Right. But to tie back to this, like this is a giant event. You know, this is the new frontier. It is this decade spanning event. And I think this is a better way to handle a big story is to not tie it through every book that's trying to keep its own momentum going, but to have the big event, keep it in its own book until this big story. Right. And then let your other stories go. I I know it's crazy. (laughs) Looks like an event, but it's not the event comic that actually affects the current continuity and current uh, events in every book. Yeah, this isn't. This is technically one of the multi-Earths, right? Like this isn't canon. It's not canon. Yeah, I don't think about this point they would identify it as not being Elseworlds or anything. But in that feeling, there are various story threads in here. I just wished for more of them. You know, like I I wanted to follow mm-hmm. through with even more of the Martian Manhunters' experiences. Mm-hmm. And I don't, even though the Martian Manhunter started in a detective comics in 1955, I don't feel like I can go back to those comics and get more of these experiences with the Martian Manhunter and King Faraday and all of that stuff. Yeah, I wonder how much was in that original stuff and how much is kind of retrofitted as with most of this comic for the characters we're more familiar with. But I will say Martian Manhunter was a standout character here. And one of the standout moments was between Batman and the Martian Manhunter being the two Gothamites with Batman basically laying down the law with him. Like he's willing to work with him, but he says, you know, 
if you do this thing I don't want you to do, you know, I bought this, you know, million dollar rock to deal with the one in Metropolis with you. <laughs> I just need a penny for a book of matches. And it's like, all right, it's, I think the best line in this book, because I don't think I saw one recap or anything right. without it. Well, it would be fun to have a, a continuation where we see more of Batman's adventures as a sort of stay in the shadows vigilante who is completely working illegally. Although who secretly is friends with Superman and Superman set up a fight where it looked like he could beat him. <laughs> You're right, Damien. What DC needs is another Batman book. No. On the money. But as I read this, I want to read more of the the it's it's like getting scenes from a world of comic books that you don't have. Uh, right. An alternate. Anyway, I guess that's what any else world's kind of book would be. You you briefly get. But the the, well, the tapestry here means that you get glimpses. Maybe that's a bit like being a kid reading comics back before you could get all the issues. Right. And you could imagine a much better better uh continuous universe than there actually was either at marvel or dc when you only read bits and pieces and you knew they were all connected and you kind of connected them in your imagination a bit right and i one thing that is odd about this book is that there's no superfluous use of a character in a costume right if they're in superhero mode that moment's going to sing stronger than the other two around it with the the set piece moving and whatnot because that's all done by people in suits or people in military garb chatting or shooting uh, superhero it. moments are purely climax they're purely you know the the delivery of the the final moment of either a mm -hmm. large portion of the story or of the final bit of the story I mean, we signify the entry of the third act when Hal Jordan actually puts on the ring and gets the costume. Right. But even when he first gets the costume, he decides not to wear it. And his main use of the ring is to power his jet. So it's only when he's being swallowed by a giant monster and needs to rescue other people being swallowed by a giant monster. They finally sort of reveals himself. At, reveals the Green Lantern as a superhero that the world might see. Well, yeah, and I feel like there's like a uh, generation age thing here. So it's the thing that pushes him to let go of the last generation and move to being the superhero, this new generation. Even though superheroes were there before, but he's part of the New Guard, right? And I right. feel like the New Guard is what... There's kind of a match for everyone. So Martian Manhunter, Green Lantern... Um, and flash and i guess green arrow but uh it's i don't know it's interesting so and also is you know nice uh you know nice playing to the fans or the deep readers is characters that haven't even yet become superheroes on these pages are there like what's the name of the guy who becomes the atom um his technology no. becomes his unstable right. technology becomes very important but he had he, turtle boys in here turtle boy here <laughs> you know now that I, I i'm liking it again I, w I was starting to dislike it at points as i was reading it and then by the end i liked it again but i i kept shifting my thoughts of what i thought i was reading well i feel like the last the the last act the last third is the strongest of the book Right, and I guess we should mention, I'm kind of curious what you thought of the ending with uh, Kennedy's speech. 
I didn't really like that. Okay. Because it tied back into the racism. It showed the grave of John of John Wilson, aka John Henry. It showed Lex Luthor. I don't know. I I don't have this uh, Kennedy worship. Well, you didn't like the presidential connection between uh, Luther and Kennedy. Um, I didn't totally make it that way. <laughs> Just joking. Yeah, I mean, I liked the drawings, but I, 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 and I could see how it was clever to to put a real speech by John Kennedy up against these pictures from the DC universe and have it kind of make sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess Kennedy was an inspirational speechmaker. I was too young to ever appreciate that. And I I think by the time I got old enough to look into things like Kennedy, I already had kind of an anti, anti-baby boom kind of feeling going on in my heart. Gotcha. Okay. I have to be a millennial. You're stuck with it. Well, you will prove that millennials are not what some old farts think they are. Well, we're the old farts now, so there you go. Somewhat old farts, yeah. All right. Next time on Never Stay Dead, continuing our talks from the works of the minds of their day, Frank Miller and Chris Claremont, I decided we should revisit their one true collaboration, the not actual continuity origin but the true like birth of the character known as marvel's wolverine the four-part miniseries called and yeah which will read like eight issues because that thing's is it packed okay i've reread it once or twice but it's been a long time since i've reread it so we'll see it's also a claremont comic so it's got a little extra verbiage in there yeah that'll be interesting and it'll be like our sixth time doing something x-men sorry i'm just on a thing we're we're becoming the it's not all you i've picked x-men stuff too we're becoming the x-men podcast by default well it's okay we'll we'll work in more uh spider-man right that's the counterbalance so we will be back we will not die or we we will die and we will revise see you matt see ya Sue with three claws. Matt and I can talk in secret where we talk about Trump wearing diapers and being a superhero. But, um, oh. see, that's oh. the kind of conversation that's going to remain private, like Steve Dicko's oh. personal drawings <laughs> of Donald Trump right. naked. <laughs>